Just a heads up for anybody listening, this episode is exceptionally creepy and includes attacks on both humans and animals and the consumption of remains by, well, something. Something not quite human. If any of this upsets you, well, consider this your warning. The following account was sent to author Lon Strickler in response to a blog post. I want to share an experience I had while training with my National Guard unit at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. I don't really want to give specifics on my service, as the community is small enough to identify me to peers. In 2014, my platoon decided to conduct nighttime land navigation at Fort McCoy from 2030 to 0 dark 30. While the Army is typically all about buddy pairs, night land navigation is one of the few cases we can do things solo if we choose. Having done night land navigation plenty times before, I step off alone, compass, map, and headlamp in hand. For those who do not know, land navigation involves seeking out markers of a course by plotting their coordinates on a map and moving there via terrain references and compass. At night, this is typically done without light as much as possible. When light is used, it is red. This minimizes damage to night vision. Ostensibly, these methods also keep you concealed in a tactical environment when employed with noise discipline. I bring this up so you can understand a few things about my circumstance. I was moving through the woods while making a token effort to be hard to hear and spot. The woodland I was in was part of a larger forest system, but was frequently traveled. That night, we had some 15 soldiers clomping around. My illumination was a toggleable headlamp, but it was toggled to red when turned on. To cycle to white, I must turn it off twice. The cycle was off, solid white, off, flashing white, off, solid red, off, flashing red, off, solid white, and so on. My assigned points will take me to the other side of the course and back. A good hour and a half of walking as the crow flies. They're in a straight line, so I estimate about two and a half hours out there and back. I know if I come back too early, I might just be given another set of points. So I resolve to walk out, take a break for an hour, and then mosey back. The first half of this goes as planned. I get my points without much trouble and wind up sitting on a hillside at around 10 o'clock at night. It's cloudy, but the moon is full. I can see well when the sky is clear, poorly when it's not. Occasionally, I see a red light bobbing in the distance below me. Once, a pair of platoon members pass down the hill from me, using white light to try to read their map. I startle them when I ask them if they need help. At the end of my break, there's no more motion in my area. Most people had likely already walked out and back, or they were too lost and took to the hand-railing road home. I'm feeling pretty at one with my surroundings, having sat in the same spot, eating stale skittles for a good long while. Owls hoot, trees sway, all is well. I trot down my hill and stepped through some brush. I'm in a clearing where prairie intersects forest. There are some dead trees in the area. One of them is split halfway up. At the top, about 15 feet up, I can make out a head and shoulders silhouetted against the clouds, backlit by the moon. I walk up to ask how they got up there, and if they're stuck, when the shadow twitches and I get the impression it's turned towards me. I stand there looking at it, 
and it's maybe looking at me. The situation feels off, but I'm not going to let a battle buddy punk me. I ask if they need a hand. Mid-sentence, the moonlight comes back. It's clear the thing on the tall stump is not a soldier. This moonlight glimpse is the best look I get at the thing. It looks like a stretched out bald person. Its long arms are clutching the stump. I can't make out the face, but it looks pinched. By that I mean I couldn't see its eyes or mouth like they were small and in the middle of its face. It's skinny like it hasn't eaten, but it's tall and obviously strong to have made such a vertical climb. It was facing me. It probably was the whole time I was in the clearing. Maybe since I came down the hill. Maybe my speech startled it. I swear loudly. It rapidly scurries down the trunk. I flick on my red light and catch it on all fours moving towards the brush line in a direction I'm headed. Automatically I keep toggling the lamp to be in white light. That means it goes off then to flashing red. In the flash I see the thing at the wood line. But I think it's flipped around and it's backing in. Probably to keep its eyes on me. In the few seconds it takes for me to get to the white light, it's gone. I scan the tree line, which is silent. When it moved, there was a scraping noise, plus the woodland brush is dense. If it was still running, I would hear it. It must still be watching me. After ages, I start inching along a perpendicular path to my initial route of travel. An angle that will link me up with the hardball road that runs up and down the side of the course. Once on the road, I can take it back to where my platoon is parked. My major problem is that the road is 10 minutes of walking away from my current position, mostly woodland. That can't be helped. I have to get out of the clearing first. My progress on that front is painfully slow. After sidestepping a good 10 meters, I hear a corresponding rustling, and I think I see movement. It's enough to get me to turn and bolt, right into a down log that trips me. I scramble up to my feet and look back to the wood line where there is an audible commotion. I glimpse a leg and an ass moving back into the woods. At this point, I'm done with the whole situation, but I don't want to run again. I start power walking to the road, turning to look as much as I can while seeing what that thing is doing. Over the movement of my own kit, I can hear it moving alongside me, parallel. As I near the end of the clearing, I think I hear it picking up pace as if to cut me off. When I enter the woods, my path is clear, but I think I can hear it in my periphery. I don't stop, and I run hard until I hit the paved road. Once in the road, I run perpendicular to the forest until I don't think I hear it anymore. I'm winded from my breakout run. From the middle of the road, I have good visibility and I decide to walk to catch my breath. It's quiet for a while. Then I hear a branch move around 30 feet up in the air from the woods I had just fled. I snap my gaze up and see a pale, ovular face, half in shadow, peeking at me from around a tree trunk. This account was received in May of 2021 and was submitted by someone listed only by the initial R. They have since repeated nighttime land navigation multiple times, but admittedly, not out of courage, but because they convinced themselves that they had misinterpreted the events. In their closing remarks, they state, Maybe the world, 
is weirder than I thought. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, Goblins, to Season 3 of the Esoteric Book Club. Before we get started, I need to give thanks to members of the Esoteric Archive, specifically Annie Kay and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. If you would like to support the show and become a member of the Archive, go to patreon.com forward slash esotericbookclub. All patrons get early access to shows, and those pledging $3 or more a month get extended book club episodes. Those extra special weirdos who pledge at the $8 tier and up get shoutouts on shows, along with a warm tingly sensation that may or may not be related to the fleas picked up from playing fetch with the dogman. I really should just get him a flea collar. Your donations help to pay server costs, buy reading material, and to keep a steady supply of coffee in my bloodstream. If a monthly subscription isn't your thing, there is also a PayPal link in the show notes for a one-time donation. Anyone who makes a one-time donation will get a shout-out in the following episode. Look, I know a lot of you skip over this part, but really, if everyone could chip in just $1 a month, I could start to bring you extra episodes. I know it doesn't seem like much, but I have enough listeners that it would add up pretty quickly. Anyway, I just wanted to take a moment to be serious before we get into tonight's shenanigans. So what exactly are we talking about tonight, anyway? Sure, the introductory story was creepy, but what in the world was that thing? We've already heard about something similar in Season 1, Episode 3, The Slenderman Mysteries. But this... This is something a bit more insidious. Tonight, I'm looking at a book that came out in February of 2022 entitled The Meme Humanoids, Modern Myth or Real Monsters by Lon Strickler. Lon is the author of Phantoms and Monsters blog, which has been active since 2005. His reports have been used in Ancient Aliens, Paranormal Witness, Factor Faked the Paranormal Files, Monsters and Mysteries in America, and he is a repeat guest on Coast to Coast AM. He has written nine books, four of which are a compilation of encounters submitted to his website, and five which are published through anomalist books on specific topics, such as The Mothman, Alien Disclosure, Winged Cryptids, and his last, The Meme Humanoids. If you want to check out his website, simply go to phantomsandmonsters.com. Before we talk about the subject of the book, I want to define what a meme is, so people understand where the title comes from. A meme is, quote, an idea, behavior, or style that spreads from one person to another within a culture. The word was coined in 1976 and has the same Greek root as the term mime and mimic. In modern usage, it also applies to a humorous or witty digital media file that is shared virally on the internet. The meme humanoid? Well, he's a little bit of both. You see, folklore is a prime example of a meme. 
it starts out with a single story or sighting. That person then tells another person, who tells a neighbor, who tells their friend, who tells their, well, you get the point. At that stage, the story has become regional folklore, if not more, but initially it was spread by word of mouth. Cryptids are usually regionally isolated, but sometimes their legend goes beyond imaginary lines drawn on a map. With the introduction of the internet, it became more common for stories to spread rapidly under the right circumstances. The internet also became the spawning ground for a new form of folklore, commonly known as creepypasta. This term is a variant on the term copypasta, which is a bit of digital text that is frequently cut and pasted onto different forums and social media. Creepypasta follows this same idea, but focuses on paranormal or horror-related stories. While the original creepypasta was mostly an image with short blurbs of text, it slowly became a bit more interactive with various forum members adding details to the mythos of each creature. Sometimes, such as with Slenderman, creepypasta can grow beyond its digital confines. As we heard in the previous episode, though, there is question whether the meme generated a cryptid or whether a cryptid inspired the meme. That is the subject of this book. In fact, the meme in question was the forerunner of the Slender Man. The two share a similar appearance, but where the Slender Man tends to be well-dressed and have a soft spot for children, the rake is far more feral. Created on the infamous message board known as 4chan in 2005, the rake was initially described as the following. Humanoid about six feet tall when standing, but usually crouches and walks on all fours. It has very pale skin. The face is blank, as in no nose, no mouth. However, it has three solid green eyes, one in the middle of its forehead and the other two on the side of its head, towards the back. One of the tacks, a mouth opens as if on a hinged skull that opens at the chin. It reveals many tiny but dull teeth. If that sounds like any number of creatures in modern media, you're probably right. Monsters of that description can be seen in the movie The Descent, and in Season 7 of the Monster of the Week series Supernatural. Which, if you ask me, it's one of their worst seasons. Their appearance in The Descent gave them some of their alternative names. The Crawlers, or Pale Crawlers. As I mentioned earlier, though, there is some question whether or not this creature wasn't already part of the zeitgeist. While the rake, pale crawler, or fleshgate may not have been known by these specific names, their predecessors haunted mankind for quite some time. Lon goes into a series of personal theories about this idea of pale predatory humanoids. He associates a variety of cryptids with the phenomena, such as wendigo and skinwalkers, the puka, Jinn, poltergeist, alien greys, and even thought forms. In the case of thought forms, he formulates the idea that the rake entity, while not initially an actual creature, has manifested in our reality because so many people recognize and fear it. These focused thoughts and fears coalesce into a physical entity. If this sounds similar to what we spoke about in the Slenderman episode, 
you'd be right. In fact, the very idea of creepypasta sounds very similar to how the Philip experiment was conducted. I briefly talked about the Philip experiment in previous episodes, but I'll give you a quick summary. This experiment was conducted in the 1970s at the Toronto Parapsychological Research Society, or TPRS for short. The idea was to create a fictional person with a full dynamic history, and then try to contact them via seance. Sounds pretty wacky, right? The odd part is that it worked. Philip Aylesford was born in 1624, participated in the English Civil War as a spy, became a contemporary of Charles II, was unhappily married to one woman, and fell in love with a Romani girl who was later burned at the stake for witchcraft. Grief-stricken, Philip committed suicide at the age of 30. There were detailed accounts of this time in the service to the crown, journal entries alluding to his unhappy marriage and his affairs, and even military records showing his knighthood. The trick was, none of this actually happened. All the members of the TPRS participated in fleshing out the details of this character, so it was like they all knew him to some degree. When they went to conduct the seance, each of them felt as if they were summoning a person that they were acquainted with. And it worked. An entity appeared, although not in physical form. It did seem to respond to questions in much the same way that a poltergeist interacts with its surroundings, though. The experiment was such a success that the TPRS repeated the process two more times, creating the figures of Lilith and Humphrey, both yielding similar results. What we see in this experiment is the creation of a figure using an agreed-upon base with which other participants add in details, fleshing out the character. When the character is complete, they attempted to make contact and they got answers. The Philip experiment only involved eight people. Now, if we look at creepypasta, we see something similar. A single individual creates an entity with a basic description and or an image. This entity causes a visceral reaction with people online, and they begin to add to the mythos themselves. They create mixed media performances with this entity, making audio recordings, videos, movies, photoshopped images, etc. It becomes viral and spreads across various online platforms around the world. It's loose, and it's free, spawned from the involvement of far more than just eight participants. Beyond this, Lon says that the idea of this creature can be traced pretty far back in history. We see something similar in H.G. Wells's The Time Machine when he describes the Morlocks, a subterranean race that split from humanity at some point in their past, or our future. Time travel gets a bit wonky like that. So now that description is at least in the back of the minds of people who have read that book. Jump forward to 1947, and we have the Roswell UFO crash, and, in some accounts, the description of recovered alien remains. Again, they are described as being lanky, pale, and hairless, with large, dark eyes. This description continues into modern ufology. Then, 
1977, we get an account of something that sounds more like the Pale Crawlers. Witnessed late at night in Dover, Massachusetts, the Dover Demon permeated the media in the local community for quite some time. While it was described as having rosy or orange-tinted skin with a texture of wet sandpaper, it was the means of locomotion that really put it into the realm of the Pale Crawler. It had a bipedal form, but was initially witnessed crawling along a loose stone wall, carefully placing its hands and feet on stable cobblestones, gripping each of them. To me, the movement sounds like a chameleon walking along a tree limb. This locomotion, combined with the description, later causes Lawn to suggest that it was possibly one of the first witness accounts of the entity later known as the Rake. But this is just one possible solution. Taking a hard left turn, Lawn looks towards the possibility that the meme humanoid is a ghoul, which he says is one of three types of djinn, which I'm not exactly sure where he gets that info. It's mostly mentioned in passing, so I'll just continue. According to mythology, ghouls are shape-shifting cannibals, and encounters with them generally end in some form of exorcism. We don't generally hear about the rake changing form, and we really don't have any accounts of them being driven away by exorcism. I think in this instance, it's just the description of both entities are similar, and their desire to consume human flesh places them in a similar category. Next, he presents the hollow-eyed and black-eyed kids. I was completely unaware of the first part of this phenomena, the hollow-eyed kids. In Lon's research, he cites the first report as taking place in the 1980s, with a pause until about 2014. It also sounds like it might be a regional cryptid limited to London, England. The description is usually the same. A small child, about one meter tall, with coal-black pits where their eyes should be. One of the modern encounters reports that the creature was seen in the subway when a couple heard giggling coming from one of the tunnels. When they looked, they saw a young girl on the tracks, but where her eyes should have been, there is nothing but inky blackness. It would be remiss to not include the black-eyed kids here, but really, I feel like they're like the ghouls. They're in a similar category as the rake, but they're not the same creature. Black-eyed kids? They're just creepy. Generally, a child or a group of children will approach an individual and ask for a ride or to be allowed into the person's home. It seems that they want to get the person in an enclosed space and isolated. Witnesses say that the reason they refuse to help these children is because their eyes are black. Not like dark brown, but 100% completely black, edge to edge. Noticing this inhuman appearance seems to be what saves the witness. Because we have yet to find out what happens when the black-eyed kids are allowed into your vehicle or home. At this stage, Lawn has given us a pretty good selection of possibilities for what the meme humanoid could be. It's mostly speculative, and I think the one that gets closest is the Dover Demon. But even that encounter seems tame compared to the Rake. Everything I just summarized for you is really just the first one-third of the book. 
Beyond this point, it is jam-packed full of witness accounts, several of which I'm going to read for you. So get ready, turn out the lights, and crawl under a blanket. It's time to get weird. August 28, 2012, in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Sir, my brother referred your email address to me. He thought you may have an answer to what I saw this past July while camping in the Sierra Nevada Mountains near Tioga Lake, California. My teenage son and I were camping in our RV. There were other campers in the area, but not very close to us. On the third night of our trip, we encountered something that neither of us can explain. This is bear country, and I know there have been Bigfoot reports over the years, but what we saw was neither, as far as we can tell. We secured all the food and other supplies in the RV, and were getting ready to go to bed. It was about 12.30 in the morning. My son fell asleep quickly while I was getting a few things ready, as we were going to leave this location later in the morning. I was looking at a map when I started to hear high-pitched screams. At first, I thought it was a coyote, but it was a single scream and sounded more human, like a woman's scream. I opened the RV door and stood silent in the doorway. Once again, the high-pitched scream started. This time, it woke my son. We both stood at the door as the screams continued from the direction of the mountain. After about ten minutes, the screams stopped, so we both went to bed. Something startled me while I was sleeping because I woke in a panic. I looked at my watch. It was about 2.40 in the morning. Then suddenly, that same high-pitched scream erupted outside of the RV. As it started, my son jumped out of his rack and fell to the floor. I grabbed my 44 just in case. As we looked out through the windshield, the moonlight was bright enough to illuminate a tall, thin creature with light-colored skin. My son yelled out, ZOMBIE! It did look like a female human form, but the face and the rest of the body looked horrible. It reminded me of an old witch. It had no clothes, a deformed face, long light-colored hair, long arms, and long legs. I figured it stood almost seven feet tall. It was walking away from the RV towards the lake. I had seen enough. I made sure everything was ready to go and drove out of there as soon as possible. We ended up near Mono Lake. A few days later, I was able to talk to a ranger as he walked through the camping area. He was an older guy and quite engaging. I described what we witnessed. My son also verified what we had seen. The ranger got a serious look on his face and said that over the years, something similar had been reported a few times. He said that they called it Penelope, but he didn't know why it had gotten that name. That's all he knew. When I got home, I searched the internet, but no information was available. My brother gave me your email address and said that you may have an idea of what it was. I'd appreciate your help. Lon contacted the witness, and they didn't have much more to add to the story, except that Penelope began to crawl away on all fours when they left. Lon continued his research by contacting the park where the event took place, and a park ranger confirmed that there had been several reports of encounters with the creature fitting that description. He verified that the thing was known as Penelope, but he had no clue where that name came from. 
This next story comes from Missouri, from around 2017. I lived in a small town in Missouri called Pierce City. I had saved up a good four years worth of paychecks and sold my TV to buy a used Suzuki SV650. It was my dream bike. I went and bought it and my father helped me get it to the home because I wasn't legally able to ride it for another few weeks. I remember when we got home, I put it in our barn and locked the barn because we didn't have a garage. I don't remember why I did it though. It's a very small town and we know pretty much everyone and are hours away from the nearest neighbor. I fell asleep about 10 or 11 that night and woke up at 3 a.m. because I heard a large bang near the barn. I thought it was one of the horses that might have gotten spooked or something, so I went out to check. I always carry a buck 110 folding knife, and when I got to the barn, it was still locked. There are no windows besides one way at the top, but it's a good 15 feet high and there wasn't a ladder. I unlocked the barn and walked in, and my new, well, used, bike was on the floor. I heard a crunching or chewing noise, so instinctively I grabbed my knife. There was very little light, just enough to reflect the polished metal. I peeked into the pen, and I kid you not, there was something squatted over the horse. It had to have killed it, as it was a healthy animal and we took good care of it. I've seen wolves eat animals before, and it wasn't like that. It looked like that thing from The Lord of the Rings. The cave dweller thing, but taller. And I know it was only a couple of seconds, but it felt like minutes of me being frozen there. Whatever it was, looked at me, and I turned and sprinted back to the house screaming. I swear it chased me. It ran on all fours and screeched like worn brace on a heavy vehicle. I must have awoken my dad as he met me at the door with his gun loaded and fired two shots in its direction, and then he shoved me inside and shut the door. It seemed scared of the shots, and we later dialed the police, though they found nothing. If you guys live near there and have heard anything of it, please tell me. It still haunts me, and I live nowhere near there now. To finish the show, I'm going to read an account that took place in West Virginia. The way the witness reacted is probably the most West Virginia thing I've heard in quite a while. You'll understand when you hear it. On a summer night at the end of July in 2008, we were camping while working to sell our wares at a flea market in Huntington, West Virginia. It was hot in the camper, so I got up and walked outside where I found my nephew sitting and texting on his cell phone. It was about 3 in the morning. Deciding to take a walk in the night air, we made our way about 100 yards to the end of the long flea market building and sat down on a concrete slab. The light that was on top of the building illuminated the area where we sat. To our front, there was a big open field, and behind the field, there was a tree line that led to a forest. A large billboard on the highway cast a sliver of light across the ground, but the rest of the field was pitch black. As we sat there chatting, I saw something white, about 80 yards, squatted down along the edge of the tree line. I looked at my nephew and asked if he saw what I was seeing. He said he did, but neither of us could determine what it was. The creature started to emerge from the tree line. It came out about 20 feet, almost crawling to stay close to the ground. When it reached the edge of the sliver of light that was streaming across the field, it paused for a second, never breaking its gaze on us. When it reached the edge of the light, it leaped. 
elongating this body to move through the light in one quick movement, and it landed in the darkness on the other side, still maintaining his stare. The time in the light allowed me to see it more clearly. Its body was long, gangly, slender, and pale white. At this time, it was about ten yards away from us, having cleared half the original distance. It started to inch closer, pausing in a steady, curious manner, inching towards us as we sat there shocked and frozen at the sight of it. Now it was about three yards away, and it stayed in that position for a longer time. At this point, I had time to take in its features in greater detail. Its stature was four to five feet tall, very lean and skinny, pale white skin, and no hair on the creature at all. It kept itself in a hunched position when still, its knees folded backwards like an animal's hind flank. Its arms were long and skinny, reaching down to hands that had very long thin fingers with claws. It had big black almond-shaped eyes, very small pointy ears that were close to its head. It had very long pointed interlocking teeth that were always exposed and lips that were so small they barely showed around the huge teeth. Its nose turned upward like a bat and lay close against its face. Crouched, it slowly walked to the edge of the light we were enveloped in. Within two yards now, it was looking at us, making a low snarling sound as it breathed. That was all I could hear over the pounding of my heart, which was now in my throat. It was staring at us and cocking its head from side to side as if it were trying to figure out its next move. As I sat there wondering what could happen next, it sprang into the light with its arms up and mouth open wide, making crazy screaming growling sounds running towards us. Coming to within a foot of us, I leapt to my feet, putting my fists up in a defensive posture. It looked up as if noticing I was larger than it originally thought. Then it quickly turned and ran away, kicking dirt and gravel up in my face. It was off through the field and I watched as it ran towards the forest. Then I heard the rustling of the brush as it moved through the woods. Yep, only a West Virginian would be willing to fistfight a pale crawler. Before we close out the show, let's talk a bit about the book itself. The introductory chapters were good, and were a good lead-up to the stories themselves. That said, the intro covered the first one-third of the book, while witness accounts covered the remaining two-thirds. Usually, this is a good thing, but with pale crawler stories, they tend to get very repetitive very quickly. After a hundred pages of two to three paragraph witness statements, I jumped to the closing chapter. I went back to read stories here and there, but it's hard to read straight through. I think if there were a bit more exposition from the author, it would have helped. Maybe if the stories were better grouped by shared physical features or patterns of behavior. I don't know. Something to break up the monotony. 200 pages of creepypasta about a single entity is a bit much. The conclusion was lacking. Like, there really wasn't a conclusion. It just sort of ends. At minimum, I would have expected a review of the opening chapters, applying the evidence from witness reports, and the author's own conclusion. Nope. We don't have any of that. Overall, I enjoyed this book because the subject is still new to me. 
If you've read about Pale Crawler encounters before, well, you've already pretty much read two-thirds of this book. If you just want a collection of sightings, wonderful! You will love this book! For the rest of us, maybe grab a used or a digital copy. It's not a bad book, but there's not really anything there to make it stand out. If you want to check it out for yourself, look for The Meme Humanoids, Modern Myths or Real Monsters by Lon Strickler. I'll have a direct link in the show notes. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. I'm slowly uploading the back catalog to YouTube under Esoteric Book Club Podcast, though you should be able to find me pretty easily if you just look for the Esoteric Book Club. You really can't miss the logo. I also have to thank Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June for allowing me to use their song Fight Don't Fight for my intro and outro music. If you want to hear more of their work, you can find them at wearehellojune.com and on bandcamp.com. If you are in the West Virginia area, con season is quickly approaching. That means you may be able to see me out and about. I'll be the bearded weirdo in the Esoteric Book Club booth. So far, I am scheduled to be at Central West Virginia Pagan Pride, the Case Paranormal Expo, Cryptid Bash 2, and at PopCon West Virginia. One final thing before I sign off. I am currently working on a research project about magic and superstition in West Virginia. If you are from the state, even if you no longer reside here, please feel free to contact me at jason at esotericbookclub.org and I'll send you a link to an introductory survey for the project. If you don't want to email me, that's fine. I'll also have a copy of the link in the show notes. So that's it. Patrons, stick around for a few more stories. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. you extra special weirdos. It's time once again to open the Esoteric Archive. I've got two more witness stories for you from the meme humanoid. This first one takes place on a Native American reservation in Arizona.